Hello, and welcome to this episode of Bible Study with Agape Fellowship. We study God's Word verse by verse, and currently we are in Matthew chapter 5, studying the Beatitudes. So far, we learned how blessed it is when we are poor and in mourning. In this episode, we will learn from the next couple of verses, starting from verse 5. Blessed are the meek. I think I missed it on the thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The first two Beatitudes are inward looking. It's about us. The third one is how one relates to one's fellow man. The first two were mainly negative. In other words, you were mourning. You were poor, and God had a solution, something to offer you. In this case, it's clearly a positive one. In other words, for the meek, what does it mean? Meek, by the way, how would you define, before I go forward, how would you define meek? Anybody want to take a stab at that? The humble Okay. Someone who's poor or weak in spirit. Weak and poor in spirit. Okay. Meek is definitely not a wallflower. One of the least valued attributes today in this world today is humility. The Greeks and Romans considered meekness as a vice because they could not understand the difference between meekness and servility. In other words, as a servant. To be meek towards others means it means freedom from vengeful spirit, freedom from malice, you are humble and meek and lowly. In other words, a quiet spirit. To be meek means to show willingness to submit and work under the authority, under a proper authority. It also is a willingness to disregard one's own rights and privileges. And what does Jesus say about that? He says, they shall inherit the earth. This implies that meek. What happens to those that are meek and lowly? That don't necessarily exercise their rights and let others take over your rights. You have rights. But let's say someone takes it over. What happens to those? In this society, in today's society, there's no place for meekness. If you're meek, you're going to get chewed up, spat out, used and spat out like you were a nobody. And not only that, whatever you have, somebody else will take, including your properties, whatever else you've got. 
because you are trusting God to be your portion and allowing whatever happens that God isn't going to be in control. You are at peace with yourself and with God no matter what happens. And there is not a need for us to toot our horn, to make a big deal of ourselves, because we are content in our position. And what God is saying here is, they will inherit the earth. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why are there so many religions in the world today? There's a religion for literally everything. In India, there are 330 million gods. And the Greeks thought they had the corner on the gods. Wait till they come to India. 330 million gods offering all kinds of solutions. Why? Because there's a need. In the human, there's an innate need to worship, a need for a center for their lives, to have meaning and purpose. And this is a deep hunger and a thirst in every soul. Now, there are some that say, you know, the atheists say, oh, I don't believe in God. But the interesting thing with the atheists who say they don't believe in God is that they invest so much of time trying to argue and disprove something that to them doesn't exist. I haven't seen someone arguing about a unicorn, have you? But the atheists who don't believe in something are always arguing about something that doesn't exist. And they want to disprove and prove and all this kind of stuff. My point is, even the atheists have this hole in there, as Blaise Pascal said, there's a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum in each person's heart. So, it is human. God has put eternity in the hearts of people. So there is no denying that. But you can deny or you can fill that with something else. And while you can fill that vacuum with something, it's only a matter of time what would happen to us as we fill that God-shaped vacuum with something else that becomes our God. That's on one side. Another point is, only a slave knows what it means to be free. Only a poverty-stricken man knows what it means to go hungry. If slavery was not an issue for you, you don't know what it means to be a slave. 
if you've never faced hunger, hung, poverty and hunger doesn't mean a thing. It's just a word in your dictionary and nothing else. It is when we recognize that there is hunger, there is something wrong with me, that we say, wait a minute, there's something wrong in here. And I want us to go back to that portion from Romans that we read earlier. Let's read the long, longer form of it. Let's read the Romans 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 to 25. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he mentioned how he strove for his righteousness. We had spoken about that earlier. And Paul explains his challenge and ultimately ends up with the question, who, not what, will save me? He understood that there was something wrong. There was, he wants to do something right, but he cannot do right. There's this battle going on in his life, in his heart. And so he's asking, who will save me from it? There's, notice, there's a hunger to do right. You may have heard of um, sacrifice, you know, baby, human sacrifice. Why is there a human sacrifice? What's the, what, what's the underlying root cause? What, what causes a person to sacrifice? You see, all religions, everywhere. Isn't it all. to satisfy angry God? It's satisfy an angry God. Why? Why should I satisfy an angry God? Because you want to be right. <laughs> That's right. Exactly correct. So they know that there's something wrong. So they want to be right. They know that perhaps God is angry and so they want to pacify. And this is all over, all religions. They all understand that there is something there that hunger for righteousness. They all hunger for righteousness. Except they don't want the truth about it. They just want to, so they come up with their own justification of why they sacrifice this and that and the other, but they never come to God on this. Let's read Romans 3, 21 and 26. 
But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a righteousness apart from the law that saves. The righteousness is attained by putting full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. It is for anyone. Notice what it says. There's no difference at all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. All have sinned. And so because we have fallen short of the glory and we recognize that, that, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that we have sinned, that's why all religions are pushing so hard to do something to get right with God. Let's read Romans 9, 30 to 33. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Notice, everyone is Israel is the, in this case. Paul is giving the example of the Israelites. They have a certain set of laws, and they think that if they follow those laws, that they're going to be righteous with God. And it says that the Gentiles discovered another way. What is that other way? That other way is what we read earlier putting their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that they might attain righteousness. They attain righteousness apart from the law. There is no law by any standard that can make us right. Laws are intended, no matter who, which language, which religion we come from, um, and even internally we create our own laws within the church and we some say, oh, you know, I've done all these things, so I'm righteous. Let me tell you, a law is only a yardstick. It's a measuring tape. It tells you how tall you are or how fat you are or how skinny you are or whatever. It's a measurement. How can a measure make you taller, skinnier, fatter, leaner, you know, whatever, whatever you want to be, er? How can the measure make you anything? No measure can make me anything. The measure can only tell me that I'm, I fell short of God's glory. That I have sinned, that I did not attain that yardstick measure that God expects me to attain in order to receive righteousness. Everybody 
as a yardstick. And some are a yardstick unto themselves. Now, this is very interesting in, in the, some of the Hindu traditions. They decided that I am God. And what did they do in the process? I've eliminated the need for a law. Because I'm God, I make up my own law. That's on the one side. And yet the same people will go to temples and break coconuts and they will do all kinds of things. To do what? Because if they're God, why do they have to go and break coconuts? Or why do they have to go and do something else? And if, if I am God or if my yardstick is, why do I have to go on pilgrimages? If I'm God, then I, I, I can forgive myself. And yet it doesn't work for them. And so they, they have the concept of the uh, incarnation, multiple incarnations. So you live, you die, you live, you die, and so on. And ultimately you will become one with the Atma. Now, all of this, if it were true, then why are we striving? And yet in our hearts, we see that there's this hunger for righteousness, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's read John three thirteen to 17. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So those who believe in Jesus Christ, those that have that desire that they hunger and thirst for righteousness God says I've sent my son that whoever believes in him will have their righteousness quenched in other words they will not hunger and thirst for righteousness because he's the one who came from heaven John 7 let's read John seven thirty-seven to 40 on the last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they had heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. So what is this great feast he's talking about? The great feast that he's talking about is, this is John. He's talking about is the feast of the tabernacle. It's also called the feast of booth. It's also called the feast of ingathering the Sukkot. Basically what it is, is on that day, the Jews are in, required to live in booths. In other words, they got to cut down tree branches and make a little box and they have to live in those boxes. 
Why do they have to live in those boxes? Because it is a time that they need to remember that they were sojourners from Egypt and they walked through the wilderness and God provided them with everything that they need during that journey. Now there's something very interesting about that. In during the journey, he provided them with quails, they provided them with manna, and they provided them something else. You know what else God provided? Water. And is it interesting that Jesus on that day says, come, anyone thirsty, come and drink from me. There's so many layers of meaning behind this. But this is the one that Jesus is focusing on. He says, come to me and drink. And out of you will flow torrents of living water. Remember, that's what happened in where? In the wilderness. Remember, Moses was asked to strike the first time, to strike the rock and then to split rock and the water split. And I mean, the rock split and the water came. Jesus is pointing them in the book of, um, in, um, I believe it's Corinthians. He says that Jesus was the rock. The Christ was the rock that went with them figuratively. And Jesus was providing them water. And now he's saying, come to me and drink from me. And anyone that receives that it is, and then John says he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Who receives the Holy Spirit? His believers. And if you've got living waters, isn't your hunger and thirst for righteousness quenched? You become a source. In other words, through you, torrents of water. And through the word of God, hunger and thirst will be quenched. Isn't it amazing that Jesus becomes that rock? Jesus is that source. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Thirsty. If we are thirsty, if we are hungry for righteousness, they shall be filled. Meekness is a quality that not many people desire, but in God's eyes, such people inherit the earth. Such profound teaching, so far removed from all that is idolized by this world. Restless hearts that seek to become right with God will find contentment in Jesus. Let us come to Jesus, the living water and the bread of life, and be filled. Do join us in the next episode as we continue meditating on the rest of the Beatitudes. God bless.